0: Hello, and uh, welcome to Sequel Decay, where the franchises we cover may be decaying, but not as bad as Prince Philip was in his final days. I'm Chris Ranta, and with me is Stefan Salahio.
1: OWNED! I'm Stefan (laughs) Salahio. Much as we should become a royal family podcast. Oh, we should. We should. Yeah. That's what the people want. The people people want want us to cover the royal family. The people want us to... To The people want us to deliver content, bi-weekly content, about a family of, like, a million-year-old incestuous lizard people who would sooner see them die.
0: Alright, you know what? Fuck it. We're gonna turn this into a royal family podcast. You ready, Stefan? Cut I'm to ready. music! Hi, and welcome to, uh, Royalty free. We're the uh, Royal Family Podcast. I'm Chris Ranta, and with me is Stefan Salehio.
1: I'm Stefan Salehio.
0: And uh, for our first ever episode, we're going to start by uh, deeply analyzing the Royal Family. Are you ready, Stefan? Yes. All right. I think it's safe to say that the Royal Family is just
1: a bunch of racist, incestuous troglodytes. That would be fair. Fun fact, the only reason they are known as the House of Windsor is because during the First World War uh obviously the the british empire was at war with with the german empire and uh what we now know is the house of windsor like the british royal family was actually german i think they were called the house of sax Coburg and gotha so what they were worried about was that the people would kind of who had been, who were being t- told that all like germans were like inherently evil they were worried that they would actually look up at their own royal family and think hey wait a minute so they changed their name to windsor which is a much more english sounding name so not only a bunch, a bunch of inbred racist troglodytes, but also uh, se- uh, secretly German inbred racist troglodytes. Okay, well that
0: does it for our first and last episode of royalty free. Once again, I'm Chris Ranta, and with me is Stefan Leo.
1: Join us next time for when we yell repeatedly that we should preserve that we should preserve Prince Philip's body in state, glass mausoleum, Lenin style, just forever, forever and ever. Prince Prince Kim Jong-un, baby. Let's go. Wait, there's a next time? So, Chris, in lieu of talking about the royal family, what are we talking about today? We are talking about... I would say
0: two of my favorite films. One, one of my favorites in recent memory and just probably one of the best films ever mm-hmm. made. Uh, we are talking about two Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Mm-hmm. Now, you may be wondering, Chris, Stefan, why the heck, why the gosh darn heck are you two talking about Paul Thomas Anderson films on a program called Sequel Decay. Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't make sequels. And to that I say you're right. Mm -hmm. And I don't actually know.
1: Mm -hmm. Does that answer satisfy you, folks? No, too bad. Our show, our rules. Nobody cares. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson doing Marvel Movie 1. That sounds like a nightmare. Anyway, go on.
0: That sounds so sad.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like... It sounds fucking... uh, Budging. Depressing. Imagine, like, Paul Thomas Anderson's, like, Punisher movie. Ooh. Sounds miserable. That sounds utterly depressing. Paul Thomas Anderson's Guardians of the Galaxy. That sounds... That actually does sound terrible. Paul Thomas Anderson's Swamp Thing. Is it weird that I can see that working? Yeah, I can
0: see that working.
1: Yeah. It it, it would... A lot of things would have to go right, but I can definitely see that working. Paul Thomas Anderson's The Mask. Ooh, that
0: sounds absolutely horrifying. Yeah. And existentially miserable. Nightmare fuel. So, which two Paul Thomas Anderson movies do we pick? Well, we we picked two that are primarily set in the 70s. This mm-hmm. should narrow it down for everybody that yes. knows a thing or two about Paul Thomas Anderson. We chose 1997's Boogie Nights and 2014's Inherent Vice. Yes. I guess before we begin, I'm just going to I'm sure there's some people who are asking who, who the heck is Paul Thomas Anderson? And I'm sure none of them are listening right now.
2: <laughs>
0: I'm sure the rest of you know who he is, but I'm sure there's maybe someone who doesn't. So I'll kind of go into it. So Paul Thomas Anderson, you may know as the writer and director of such films as Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, uh, There Will Be Blood, The Master, Phantom Thread, and I feel like I'm
1: missing something. Well, there's Heart 8, but I don't well, know. Well, there's that. Heart 8. But I don't know how much people have seen Hard Aid.
0: Yeah, no, that one's really hard to
1: find. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. of course, are the two movies we talked about. Boogie and Nights then, of, and of
0: course, yeah, Boogie Nights and Inherent Vice. And uh, this year, he'll be returning with another film set in the 70s called Soggy Bottom, supposedly. And boy, oh boy, I can't wait to watch Paul Thomas Anderson's Soggy Bottom on the biggest screen I p- can possibly find. Here, here. Why these two films specifically? And why did we not wait until Soggy Bottom came out? Well, I'll tell you. It was between this or Scooby Doo, okay. It sure was. And the Scooby Doo episode would have been thirty-two
1: minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> May still happen. Not ruling it out, but I yeah, think I'm we're, not... gonna get a little, we're gonna get a little more meat out of this one. I think. Watch we'll just say that now and then? Like our Scooby Doo episode, whenever mm-hmm. it happens, turns out to be like a five-hour magnum opus. All right, time to talk about the intricate workings of capitalism in Spooky Island. Two of the hours
0: are spent on Linda Cardellini. And I think what's really interesting about this too is that, like, they're both similar, but they're not. And I only say similar in the sense that both of them capture the turn of a decade. So mm. for Boogie Nights, it would be the 70s into the 80s. And in Inherent Vice, it's the 60s going into the 70s. Yes. And I think what's so interesting about both of them, like, and obviously, like, comparing them seems unfair because both of them are very different. But I think what's really interesting is that we're looking at two different, we're looking at two different types of Paul Thomas Anderson. We're looking at post There Will Be Blood PT Anderson and we're looking at pre There Will Be Blood PT Anderson and I think they're both very different. Yeah. Cuz you've you've seen you've seen There Will Be
1: Blood. I've seen I've seen every Paul Thomas Anderson movie save for uh, Heart Eight and The Master. But yes, I have seen There Will Be Blood. It's phenomenal.
0: There's something about Pre There Will Be Blood PT Anderson that feels different from post There Will Be Blood Paul Thomas Anderson. Like, in, in pre-There Will Be Blood, Paul Thomas Anderson, everything feels kind of looser, everything feels more, like, darkly comic, everything feels more raw, I think, mm-hmm. is a good way of putting it, too. And I think post-There Will Be Blood, Paul Thomas Anderson, there still is a level of rawness to it, but I think there's also, there's a very cold factor to mm-hmm. post-There Will Be Blood, P.T. Anderson. Like, um I, I know you haven't seen it, but The Master, I think, is one of the coldest movies I've ever watched in my life. Mm-hmm. Like, it's one of those movies where when you walk out of it, you just feel very... Not nothing, but you just... It feels like there's, like, this, like, really weird pit in your stomach.
1: Yeah. But
0: it's really hard to, like, verbalize what it is.
1: You also get that with There Will Be Blood, too, though. And you
0: also get that with There Will Be Blood, and I would say to an extent you get that with Inherent Vice, and you kind of do get that in Phantom Thread as well. Even though both Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread are funnier films. Yes. But I still think they have a lot of those sensibilities. I think this also does reflect Paul Thomas Anderson as a person because Paul Thomas Anderson then and Paul Thomas Anderson now seem like two different people.
1: Yeah, at least judging by what we can see from like a very outsider perspective.
0: Yeah, from an extremely outsider perspective. Because mm. it could be different now, but like I was I was re-watching some interviews and rereading some stuff about P. T. Anderson then and now ish. Mm. And PT Anderson now seems a lot more chill than he did back in the nineties, the two thousands. You know, because you know he was doing cocaine at the time. He, I, I think a lot of people a lot, a lot of people that listen to us probably know what happened between him and Fiona yeah, Apple. Yeah, And then you look at him now; he's married and he's got kids with Maya Rudolph, mm. and he doesn't
1: seem like he's so far up yeah. his own high. I think like kind of the, kind of the definitive moment, even even be maybe beyond the stuff with uh, with Fiona Apple, um, was is that kind of interview that I think he was doing at Can I want to say for uh, Punch Drunk Love or something like that. Oh, uh, yeah. Where, uh, I forget. Like, he's very clearly, like, coked out of his mind.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I forget yeah. the exact circumstances, but somebody asks, oh. I want to say Adam Sandler. No, I, he asks everybody. He goes,
0: what's the sexiest movie you've ever okay. seen? And he says, E.T. <laughs> he says, I think is pretty sexy. And then Philip Seymour Hoffman says, oh, I really like Mahal and Drive. And P.T. Anderson just... Death glares and goes. Oh yeah, you would
1: say that, wouldn't you? It's so bizarre and out of place. Like it's so yeah, weird. It's one of the greatest movies of the 21st century already. Like I don't know if I'd call it sexy. Yeah, but... there you go. Yeah, probably not sexy. Uh, but still, and he's like, oh yeah, you would like it. It's like it's not an own. It's not a Happy Madison movie. It it it's. It's a good, like, it's such a confusing, a confusing reaction. And then you also look at like what he was like on set for like Boogie Nights or Magnolia, because like
0: I was reading this article, I don't remember where it was from. I'm thinking the New York Times
2: mm-hmm.
0: or the New Yorker, or something like that. The piece literally starts with, and Paul Thomas Anderson is currently sitting in his editing bay, cutting together his own version of a trailer for Magnolia because he's fighting with the studio
1: over it. Yeah, uh, and then and then you have like kind of the. First of all, what the fuck? Second of oh, all, god damn it. Oh no. Fuck. God damn it. <laughs> it's like we 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 were in a we were in a zone there, but like the downside of being in a fucking zone is that you're not really thinking about what you're saying. Oh, I was I was thinking every word out. I, no, I was thinking that, too, but then there was a point where I kind of, like, was feeling myself, and I was like, yeah, I can do this. And then, like, You're as I kind you feeling kinda... yourself? Dude, that's fucking you know gross. You know what I mean. That's fucking I'm... disgusting. Don't put that shit on me. I'm a professional. That's it. Stefan Salahio is cancelled party. Let's go. Eh. Bring him down oh. like
0: Lindsay Ellis. It was gonna happen at some... God damn it. <laughs> that's on me. You know, the network said that if we could, if we could go 30 minutes
1: without swearing we'd be able to keep our jobs. Okay, so here here's the loophole. Did the network say it had to start at the beginning of the recording? Because if we start now and go 30 minutes.
0: Oh, uh, yes. Right? Eh? You're right. That that's
1: that's true. Yeah? All right. All right, All we're right. starting this over. Start the timer. All right. Go. Let's do this. Okay. So that so Paul Thomas Anderson trying to edit his own trailer together in response to the studio is a little intense. Mm-hmm. uh and then you you like you like counteract like you counterposed that with paul thomas anderson today where i think he was asked like with regards to magnolia what he would do differently and he said like something along the lines of like cut 20 minutes and chill the f out yeah something along those lines it, it, it really is kind of night and day mm-hmm. also i don't know what 20 minutes you've cut from magnolia but that's neither here nor there
0: no i mean i wouldn't cut 20 minutes from it i think it's perfect the way it is
1: No, me too, me too.
0: And also, we also got to look at the way Paul Thomas Anderson was on set with
1: Burt Reynolds. Yes.
0: Where, you know, he was apparently very hot-headed, very Mm -hmm. egotistical, very cocky, and he apparently got to Burt Reynolds and it caused a lot of tension between the two of them and allegedly there was a fist fight. So, I guess we will start... And continue our no-swearing rule while going into our first film, Boogie Nights. Stefan, what is Boogie Nights about? Is it something we can talk about without cursing?
1: Uh, maybe. So Boogie Nights is a 1997 movie directed by Paul Thomas Anderson and written by Paul Thomas Anderson, as well as starring um Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, which also includes Julianne Moore, Burt Reynolds, Don Cheadle, John C. Riley, William H. Macy, Heather Graham, Nicole Parker, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, so it begins, it, it takes place over the course of multiple years from 1977 to 1984, but it begins in 1977, uh, with Mark Wahlberg as Eddie Adams, who is kind of a high school dropout, um, living with his, uh, dad and his shitty mom, um, who catches the but eye. it's more again. Damn it. We started again. We can do this. We can do okay. this. So Eddie Adams is a high school dropout who kind of catches the eye of a adult film director named Jack Horner, played by Burt Reynolds, who, and he catches Mr. Horner's eye for having a, um, a particularly large penis is the, is I guess the direct way to, he's a thick peened boy. So he gets recruited kind of into the world of adult movies, of pornography. And that kind of sets up like his rise in the in the world of in the world of porn, which is kind of owed as much to like him being kind of a genuinely nice guy as well as to, uh, his just massive dong. And it kind of leads into his fall, um, uh, kind of owing to the excesses that he takes over the course of his career. So that's basically the story of Boogie Nights. Uh, Chris, what do you think? Of Paul Thomas Anderson's *Bookie Nights.
0: I I think this movie is exceptional. I think it's brilliant. It it takes kind of the biopic structure. And uses it less to examine someone's life and career. As it is to examine an era. Not even just an era. But Mm -hmm. two different decades. Because it's less of the rise and fall of Dirk Diggler slash Eddie Adams. As it is the Mm -hmm. rise and fall of the 70s. And a lot of the behaviors and attitudes that came Mm -hmm. from the 70s. And it's it's beautiful. Um, I think the other great thing it does as well is that it's not even focused so much on Dirk Diggler slash Eddie Adams as much as it's focused on all these other people. Like, everyone gets the spotlight yes. in some way. Everybody does. And they're all very fleshed out characters. It doesn't feel idealized. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel tropey. It feels real. Mm-hmm. It feels raw. And it's something you're probably never going to... See again because of the way biopics mm-hmm. are going mm-hmm. nowadays. Uh, it's my favorite film of '97, which was the year I was mm-hmm. born. Stefan, what did you think
1: well, of? Well, first Nights? of all, I'll say that Boogie Nights is a much better movie than Penta- than PanTanic. What? What? Pan- PanTanic? What? PanTanic is either the name of an '80s synth band or someone butchering Pandemic. Yeah, I-, I don't. I don't know what that was. Anyway, um, it's definitely better than Titanic. It is unfortunately not released in the year that i was born it missed me by about 20 days boogie nights is incredible it's it's phenomenal It, it like like we kind of said like it kind of uh, i wrote down in my notes that it's kind of uh and this is this is far from i'm far from the only person to like say this opinion but it kind of feels like um like kind of martin scorsese meets uh paul thomas Anderson. Uh, or like Scorsese by way of Paul Thomas Anderson, and that's a very simplistic take. Uh, and I, I'm not a hundred percent behind it, but it, it kind of feels like it. It, it's, it feels like Martin Scorsese in the sense that it, it, it centers along the rise and fall of these characters, but like where, but like as opposed to a Scorsese, like this is more of a like you mentioned. It's kind of a lens not only on the characters but just on kind of the era in general, like the '70s going into the. Uh, The 80s kind of the 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 definitive end of like this kind of decade of glitz at least in pop culture and entertainment and kind of entering the the reagan era
2: Mm -hmm. um
1: so that that's kind of the lens that's being applied there um it's also definitely the saddest movie i've ever seen in which a a 13 inch penis is a major plot point like i i think it i think it takes the cake pretty easily like everybody in this movie is miserable for one reason or another. Like nobody really has a, a happy story. Everybody is kind of, everybody is kind of setting themselves up for failure in one way or another. Um. Or, and even like kind of the quote unquote care, the characters that have quote unquote happy endings find themselves compromised in one way or another. It is a truly, truly sad movie and it is absolutely incredible. Uh, I don't have a thing wrong with it. Boogie Nights is incredible. It's so
0: amazing how well he balances this just really miserable tone with such dark humor, too. Um, there's, There's this outstanding running joke for the first half of the movie involving William H. Macy and his wife. Where he's constantly walking in on her sleeping with other guys. And not even just walking in. Like, there's a point where he goes outside, out into the driveway. And he just watches a bunch of people looking in as, you know... She's having sex with some guy in the driveway.
1: Yeah. it's And it's kind of funny for the first little bit, in a sad, pathetic way. Yeah, I think, like, William H. Macy has it written in his contract somewhere that he has to play sad sex. Mm-hmm. And oh, this is 100%. This is definitely an example
0: of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, Magnolia is a great example of that, too. I'm just imagining Paul Thomas
1: Anderson after doing a line of blow-away. Find me the saddest actor you can find. <laughs> It's like William H. Macy, the man whose face is constantly drooping to the point where it kind of looks like it's melting. Yeah, Yeah, that guy. Yeah, I'll do. Wait,
0: is it actually drooping? Mr. Anderson, it's it's a figure of speech. Hold this candle to his face until it droops. I demand to see him melt. Mr. Anderson, like, Frosty the Snowman, I say! (laughs) Does another line of coke. Anyway, excuse me while I continue working on my opus. <laughs> and, like, the gag goes on, and it, it is funny, and it gets funnier every time. Mm-hmm. And then it pays off at the halfway point. Mm-hmm. And the way it pays off just hurts. Yeah. Like, a part of it is really darkly funny, but at the same time, you feel terrible. You're, you're put in this weird spot.
1: I feel like, in a way, like, William H. Macy's kind of character arc kind of sets up the, the the rest of the movie in almost in almost a in a roundabout kind of way because like obviously there's set like everybody else's kind of rise and fall is set up well beforehand
2: mm-hmm. but
1: like he he's just kind of a uh, lives in, lives as an example of like what this industry does to people mm-hmm. uh where like obviously to to be in the in the porn industry in the 70s and probably like let's face it the entertainment it, today, industry in general Entertainment industry in general, but like specifically the porn industry, which is just like, I mean, we there's been the whole Pornhub con- uh, controversy recently. Like, we know how scummy the porn industry is. Mm-hmm. Like, it's got to corrode at the soul a little bit, um, and you can see that like years of this have kind of eaten away at William H Macy and his kind of relationship with his wife is just living proof of that. And at the end of the, by the end of it, it just absolutely destroys him. And obviously, that exact like career path like doesn't affect anybody else but that the industry and and like we don't not even just the porn industry but if you like you said we if we kind of zoom out to like the the entertainment industry in general like that system as a whole is destroying these people Mm -hmm. um it just happens to get to william h macy before any of them
0: well yeah and and i think just ending macy's character arc right as we go into 1980 is just the perfect setup for what's about
1: to come yeah i agree
0: and i think it really does just symbolize just how swift and how hard and how tough that turn is not just for even the characters but just in real life just in general Mm -hmm. why don't we why don't we actually why don't you tell us a little bit about the
1: 70s going into the 80s i think like generally speaking um in american culture at least like there was a lot of the the in the seventies in general were kind of an era of both, kind of both excess and humiliation, because on one hand at the, at the beginning of the decade you had the end of the Vietnam War, which is just a just a massive black eye to kind of American uh, hegemony in in pretty much any context because the world as a whole, not just Americans get taught about american exceptionalism and how america is the world's peacekeepers and like here they are trying to bully i mean of course there was there was instances of american imperialism before but this was an especially high profile one where they're they're just overtly the bad guys and trying to bully uh, a bunch of vietnamese rice farmers or or what have you at least that's the image that was presented and when they're when they're defeated ultimately it's this massive black eye to american foreign policy and then after that, of course, you kind of have the aftermath of the civil of the civil rights era of the, of the '60s, and you in an American and in an American like, especially with music, I feel because this is the first example that comes to mind. You had kind of this rejection, like where, whereas in the '60s there was at least an attempt, uh, there was at least generally like an attempt at uh, artistic expression in music, hence like prog rock and psychedelic rock. In the '70s, a lot of that kind of went out the went out the window uh and that's why the 70s was kind of the decade well not the decade it didn't last that long but that's why disco rose in the 70s and you kind of see that in boogie nights which is this movie this music of at least that had a subculture of like just excess and not really meaning anything um and that kind of led neatly into the 1980s when there was this kind of hard turn towards like hard social conservatism and uh social mores uh which you see some of the characters kind of run into in boogie nights where um in the united states you had ronald Reagan being elected president but like you can even you can even go out further than that in in uh in the uk you had margaret thatcher uh you kind of had this like kind of uh reinforcing of very hardcore social conservative values and traditional mores um so that i feel generally that's kind of the shift that society kind of well i should say generally western and more specifically american society was under was undergoing from the 70s to the 80s if you want to look oh. at that through the lens of boogie nights you can see kind of the first half of boogie nights as being kind of the, the half of excess and extravagance whereas the 80 whereas the 80s half the second half is everything kind of catching up to them
0: and and that inevitability of it too right because what goes up must come down and I, I think this movie does a really great job at that. And, I, and we and we really do see the social conservatism aspect, especially in Don Cheadle's character. By the 80s, he's kind of distancing himself from the industry. And he wants to open up his own, like, Radio Shack type of store. Mm-hmm. Hey, kids, remember Radio Shack? Uh, because he's he's a big sound guy. He's a really big sound guy. And he loves, you know, sound systems and music and all that stuff, right? And when he goes to get a loan from the bank, they reject him solely on the fact that he was involved in the porn industry at one point, which is terrible and disgusting. Mm-hmm. But it is a blatant reflection
1: of that social conservatism in the 1980s. Especially because you get the sense that, like, because Don Cheadle, like, yeah, he's he was part of the adult industry, but, like, he like, even while he was in that industry, he never referred himself... Himself as like a I was like a porn star or an adult film star like he always considered himself an actor so you mm-hmm. really do get the sense that like porn was something he kind of turned to kind of as 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 de- uh, out of a sense of desperation yeah like, and that th- I feel like that's why most people get into porn uh it, it's it is kind of like well I I can't I'm having a lot of trouble making money otherwise and sex always sells
0: and I mean like the the thing that I also find really interesting as well is. In the first half of the movie, which is entirely set in the 70s, you, you see this mentality throughout the characters of, you know, we want to make these movies feel artistic. Which is funny in a way, because when you actually like, see clips from these films, they're horrible. Yeah. Like, some of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. And then, yeah, by the 1980s, we've completely given up on that. Yeah. And it's, it's just, just sex sells. It's
1: just up, the utmost schlock.
0: Like there's no artistic value put into it. There's no heart in it anymore. Well, as much heart as there can be in the porn industry. Mm-hmm. And for the record, when I say heart, I mean that so loosely. The porn industry yeah. is
1: one of the most sinister, disgusting things on the planet. Yeah, it's it's just fuck. I did say it. It's just bad news. But it also is is an industry that like attracts a whole lot of diverse people because it. Like I said, sex sells, and if you're in a tough spot, a lot of people are going to turn to that, which is kind of what you see in this movie. Because a lot of, like, even with Mark Wahlberg's character, like, he's a real dead-end kind of guy. Like, he he dropped out of, like, he's a nice enough guy, but he dropped out of high school, and he's working, he's working at a, he's working at a a, a club as, like, a busboy, and even then, like, he's already getting paid by people to, like, so they can watch him jerk off. Like, it's, like, it, it's kind of like this sad, depressing life. Um, And he's learned at this point that, like, he can use his body to make some extra money. So when he does see the opportunity, and, like, he does actually get treated like a star, which is kind of something that he's always wanted, why wouldn't he? Mm-hmm. It, it, so the, out of this desperation kind of comes this embracing of this uh, opportunity with open arms.
0: Mm-hmm. I think another thing I also really noticed about Kind of that contrast between the 70s and the 80s. And I'm sorry to derail it back. No, it's okay. You really do see these characters really suffer for the repercussions of their actions. Like, you look at the 1970s where, you know, Jack Horner will pick up a 17-year-old kid. Like, lest we not forget that Mark Wahlberg's character in the movie is 17 years old by the beginning of the film to make these films. And you see kind of these... Behaviors and mentalities kind of linger throughout the 70s. And by the 80s, you're seeing you're seeing, you know, you're seeing one of the characters, the Colonel, getting arrested for taking home a minor and possessing child pornography. Which
1: blech! but also entirely predictable.
0: But also entirely predictable. And also really does again kind of come back to that theme of like, you know, by the eighties, you're really watching this excess and this quote-unquote, glitz and glamour in very loose terms, really disintegrate. And, mm-hmm. you know, the repercussions of this, quote-unquote, glitz and glamour in extremely loose
1: terms, you know, find, like, these consequences finally catching up to them. It reminds me of, like, kind of what we talked about in the John Waters episode with Tracy Lords. Mm-hmm. Uh where, like, I mean, yeah, I'm sure they didn't actually w- seek to cast a 15-year-old, but they enabled a system in which this could potentially happen. And... Mm-hmm. Do those events happen in boogie nights necessarily? No, not really. But it just kind of goes to show just how insidious this whole this whole business is.
0: In an extremely misogynistic system as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I think one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie is when they're starting to experiment with videotape, and they're they're doing the shoot of you know Heather Graham's character in the limo, mm-hmm. and they're just picking up random guys off the side of the road one of the guys gets in and he recognizes her right away from high school. And at first he's really into the idea of sleeping with her. And then, you know, she's not feeling it and she doesn't want to do it anymore. And she's getting really uncomfortable with this. And so, you know, finally they give up on the shoot and they ask him like, okay, just stop. And then, you know, he gets really upset and starts slut shaming her and says like, is this how you want to be remembered? And, uh, you know, nice life you've made for yourself and all that stuff. And it's like as soon as, as soon as the men get turned away from, from this kind of, well, from sex in general. And when they get turned away from pleasure, they immediately take it out hmm. on women. It's got to be their yeah. fault. Again, an incredibly insidious thing, but it really does go to show just how patriarchal the porn industry yeah, is. Yeah, no
2: kidding.
0: I mean, and also, I mean, the, the more blatant example, obviously, would be like, you know, look at all the sleazy men in this, you know, in the entire movie. But, like, I think that scene really hits at home. Mm-hmm. But this is all to say that the porn industry is insidious and wrong. And, like, nothing's really changed, I don't think, between the 70s and now. I mean, we just had the
1: Pornhub scandal. Let's talk about the cast. It that was a great stacked. cast. It's stacked. It is a, it, it's absolutely stacked. Like, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is one of the greatest actors alive. And he's, like, a the mo, like a super supporting role in this. mm mm-hmm. Um, why don't we start with Mark Wahlberg, though? Because, uh, I know you wanted to give him credit for for two seconds.
0: Yes, I I do want to give Mark Wahlberg some credit, because he does something in this movie that I've never actually seen him do anywhere else. Mm -hmm. This is the only film I've ever seen him in where he actually acts.
1: (laughs) Can't argue with that. Um...
0: Oh yeah, no, he's he's totally not just playing himself in The Departed and Ted.
1: Mm-hmm. No, no. I do I do I will admit to enjoying him and the other guys as the guy who shoots Derek Jeter in the leg.
0: Oh yeah, no, and he's 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 funny in the other guys, but again, like, yeah, he's yeah, more he's not or less really playing doing himself. Any
1: actual quote-unquote acting.
0: I'm a peacock. You got to let me fly. And he- and, like, the thing with, like, Mark Wahlberg, especially in the comedies, too, like, especially in, like, Ted or, like, the other guys, is that he's he's propped up yeah. by everyone else. Like, I don't think Mark Wahlberg would have been good in Ted on his own without, like, Seth MacFarlane and Mila yeah. Kunis and Giovanni mm-hmm. Ribisi. Just like how I don't think he'd be that good in the other guys if it weren't for, like, Michael Keaton and Will Farrell and Eva mm-hmm. Mendes and... Sam Jackson,
1: Dwayne Johnson. You know, like... Sam Jackson, The Rock, you know, for all of five minutes that they're in the movie. Side note, but their their death scene is the funniest thing I've ever I've ever seen in a movie. Oh, <laughs> aim for the bushes! It's so good. <laughs> 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 the music. <is> <laughs> I also
0: have some great news. We're finally past the thirty minute mark, Stefan. It's about fucking time, Chris.
1: I know, right? Holy fuck! Time. Oh my fucking god! We're actually going <sighs> to keep our jobs. Thanks be to praise be to the network. Praise, praise be to be the, network. the network. Another thing about Mark Wahlberg is like he's done a lot of really, really fucking unlikable things in the past. Oh, so oh yeah. It is kinda hard to it's kinda hard to be a fan of him even beyond his often non existent acting. But he is really good in boogie nights. I mean, he's he's a, he's incredible in
0: this. He's he's brilliant in this, so to speak.
1: Terrible person. Ter- yeah. This is, a this is, especially at this point in his career, like, within even, like, four years or so before this, he had done some really terrible, 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 terrible shit. Oh, yeah. Um, but this was, uh, to move away from that, like, this was kind of, like, his first um movie role that made people, like, kind of see him as an actor as opposed to just being the guy from Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Yeah. For
0: those of you who don't know what Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch
1: is, oh, God. Bless your souls.
0: First of all, bless your soul. Second of all, I feel old. <laughs> but Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch was a rap group um, led by Mark Wahlberg, who cannot rap for shit, by no, the way. he's terrible. He's terrible. Um, the one song that literally everyone knows is Good Vibrations. Yeah. A terrible song.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm not talking about the Beach Boys one. A terrible song. Mm-hmm. Mark Wahlberg cannot rap for shit. The mm-hmm. hook is really the only thing that saves that song, I think. And even then the hook's not very good. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: It's 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 good in a really campy, shitty way. Yeah. And you know, like and when he was younger too, like I, I guess we should acknowledge that the man did commit hate crimes.
1: Yeah, he liter he literally. I I don't know that we need to go into the details, but no, you look it up. It is it is very widely available information. He did assault Vietnamese people while screaming slurs at them. Mm-hmm. Like it it it's it's really really horrendous horrendous shit. Mm-hmm. Is he necessarily the same person today? No. no. Is that is that is that something that you can kind of easily brush away and forget? Also, very much no. And This isn't us saying you can't like Mark
0: Wahlberg. If you like Mark Wahlberg, you like him.
1: Yeah, I mean, like that's just fine. Remember, just remember that there's got to like you don't you don't know these people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like exactly, you like, you you don't have, you don't have to be these people. You don't have to necessarily like them as people. Just remember, you're like you know you don't really know what they're like as people. I think I think we should probably move away from Mark Wahlberg though. Yes, um, we should. He's he's great in the movie. He is really great in the movie. He's terrific in the movie. It is a little odd to see him play a seventeen-year-old at the beginning, but oddly enough, it works. Yeah, um, it does.
0: It it works fine because like he is, he does, he does have a very young face, very boyish.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I wanted to talk real real quickly about Julianne Moore,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, who plays um, I guess Burt Reynolds is. I don't know. I don't know if she's his wife, but uh, definitely like at least his live-in girlfriend. Uh... And she is also a, a a actress of the pornographic variety. And she obviously like takes an immediate liking in uh in Mark in Dirk Diggler. Um, but it's a very strange, strange relationship. Uh, because she simultaneously like lusts after him. Like, she really wants that D. She really wants it. Mm-hmm. But also she will continuously refer to to him and to a lesser extent heather graham who i believe also lives with her and burt reynolds um and and might be involved with them too to some extent at least it's somewhat implied that's just my reading but she refers to mostly mark Wahlberg as her son especially which is very disturbing especially in the context that like she does have an actual son uh from a previous relationship that she's kind of left behind as she's gotten deeper and deeper into the, into the adult industry.
0: Well, not really left behind so much as she got pushed away from.
1: Yeah, there you go. That's, that's, that's way more accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, and that kind of ties into the social conservatism thing is like, she doesn't, she loses custody like completely by the end of the movie, because like, why would, because like her kind of ex uses the fact that she was a porn star as kind of a cudgel to say like, she can't be a responsible parent. Therefore, she can't have any custody. And, like, obviously she's not exactly the most, the, the most stable person, but that doesn't really have anything to do with her being a porn star. That has more to do with her, like, fostering a really unstable, dependent relationship with Mark Wahlberg and Heather Graham, as well as being a drug addict. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And I kind of get it because, yeah, like, if she can't be a mother to her own children, she wants
0: to be a maternal figure in someone else's life. It's just that of all the people you would want to be the maternal figure of, it wouldn't be the people you're having sex with.
1: Yeah, that that's the most kind of troubling aspect of it, I think. Mm-hmm. I uh, I saw like when when I was on Letterboxd when I was uh, uh, looking at reviews for this movie, um, I saw a lot of people saying things like, "I also want Julianne Moore to be my mom," and like, I get it, I get the joke, I totally get the joke. I'm not a, I'm not a boomer, I get it, because Julianne Moore is awesome, but. I think it also kind of misses the point of like just how disturbing that relationship is in Boogie Nights. Mm-hmm. That's not like something that should be like encouraged, and they're not encouraging it. But you know what I mean. <laughs> I don't think the people on Letterboxd are deliberately encouraging it, but
0: I think in a subconscious way they are.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's definitely a joke, but I think it's worth pointing out in the context of the movie. Uh, do we want to talk about Burt Reynolds? oh
0: uh, yes, my 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 friend
1: Burt Reynolds, you about my personal Bert. friends. I, I really
0: like Friend of the Pod. Mm-hmm. And I, I am a Burt Reynolds fan. I, I do enjoy the man. He mm-hmm. makes fun movies. Mm-hmm. Um, May he rest in peace. It's weird, because, like, he really kind of wanted to stay away from this the second it came out. And I think a lot of that had to do with his relationship with Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. He's incredible. In this. Like, this is the best performance he's ever given. I can't believe he didn't win the Oscar. He's, mm. so, he's so fucking good. It just feels like he's the perfect fit for this kind of character. And I think he brings the right amount of sleaze as well as the right amount of, I guess, for lack of a better word, like pseudo sophistication.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to phrase it a little more crudely and say big dick energy, but I think you got it better.
0: Yeah, like there's because there's something about him. And I I think a lot of Anderson's ambitions really do mirror Horner to an extent of this. Like, I want to make a brilliant piece of art. I'm not saying Paul Thomas Anderson's a sketchy porn director. But I think a lot of these ambitions of I want to make something worthwhile, I want to make something that audiences are going to love, I want to make something that's really going to connect with people. And I think a lot of those visions of grandeur kind of do stem from Anderson's own visions of grandeur. And I think Reynolds really captures that so flawlessly, this like very egotistical, authoritative figure,
2: Mm.
0: where it's my way or it's the highway, you know, and I, I think one of the things that really sold it for me was like his absolute aversion to shooting things on video. Like, it had to be on celluloid, which is, I think, even something Anderson still does. Like, he insists on shooting everything on film,
1: because he's one of those losers. This is a relatively minor point, but, um, I, like, especially during the porn scenes when the porn scenes are filmed, like, you just get this very, it's not like, like, this is, these are not very titillating scenes, because, yes, of course, there's sex going on, and, uh, Julianne Moore or, or Heather Graham or whoever are topless, like, All that's going on but also like there's constant like cuts to like cameras just watching everything happen Mm -hmm. and you really get the idea that like this is people at their kind of their most vulnerable to an extent um and i'll talk about this again at the very end and like they're just kind of being exposed to the world and it's a very disquiet like uncomfortable feeling that like especially with how like their vulnerabilities come to kind of come to bite them in the ass at the end it it does it is this kind of very quietly uncomfortable feeling
0: I I, th- I think what's also really uncomfortable too is like when you cut back to them just like just watching them right it's very dead eyed and stoic
1: yeah 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 there's
0: no like there's no emotion it's very cold mm-hmm. and it just makes it that much more unsettling mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and like there's there's nothing about this movie that feels titillating I think this is like the least, and I mean this in the in the best way. I think it's a really great choice. Mm-hmm. Like it is the least sexy movie about porn I've ever seen in my life. No,
1: I totally. And agree. I
0: think it's and I think it's way better for it.
1: Mm-hmm. The most sexy movie about porn, of course, is uh, Bucky Larson, Born to Be a Star.
0: Oh, anyway. I was going to say Showgirls, but okay, that works <laughs> too. Close second.
1: Yes, of course. I've never seen that because I hate I hate Nick Swardson, but I've seen I've, it. I, uh what what's the verdict you know I turned it off about twenty minutes in that was probably the correct the correct call. I think it was around the point
0: when he's coming like everywhere like a fucking water
1: sprinkler All and right, screaming so... like a fucking hyena well i'm uh I'm glad I've never seen it because the last thing I need in my life is Nick Swardson coming uh so we're ju- we're just gonna move on we're just gonna move on past that and talk about the last half hour i think i think yeah and like one of my favorite scenes in the movie is something that happens and
0: kind of takes up a lot of the last half hour which is um todd played by thomas jane mm-hmm. what the hell is john c riley's character's name reed? uh yes yes reed rothschild yeah reed played by john c riley who's brilliant in the movie by the way
1: same with thomas jane yeah yeah absolutely i forgot thomas jane was in the movie until uh look i had to look it up but like he's he's fantastic
0: he's in it for a lot more than i remember
1: yeah he does have quite a few like establishing Um, scenes like in the first half but it's mostly the second half that he's in
0: but he's brilliant but it's it's todd reed and eddie and they go to this guy's house to try to you know try to Mm -hmm. scam him. like they they bring like i think it's like what like flour or baking baking powder powder or something and they and they try to disguise Mm -hmm. his cocaine and you know try to fuck this Mm -hmm. guy over and the the guy in question being surprise yes, Alfred Molina my
1: favorite character
0: we've watched uh, two surprise Alfred Molina movies this
1: year <laughs> hell yeah
0: um one of them yeah. was good you know and he's just coked out of his mind he is listening to this really shitty 80s mixtape which includes like Rick Springfield and whatever mm. and you know he finally realizes that this whole thing's a fucking sham the whole thing
1: derails so quickly like it is like so poorly conceived
0: it's so poorly conceived and it just derails so quickly, thanks to Thomas Jane. Like, th- it could have easily gone fine. Mm-hmm. But again, arrogance gets in the way. And that's the big thing of this movie is, like, arrogance and ego will always get in the way. Mm-hmm. And this kind of surefire attitude of, like, oh, everything is going to work out in the end. And again, like, th- coming back to the turn of the era thing, it's that just, you know, like, that's what really brought down that mentality of the 70s. Mm-hmm. The last half an hour is you're just watching this literal train wreck in slow motion.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Until finally
1: these characters wind up in the exact same positions they were in before. And then the movie just ends. (laughs) Yeah. It's a very kind of mixed note to end the the movie on. Because on one hand, you do have characters who have relatively happy endings. Like Don Cheadle, uh, like Don Cheadle uh, wanders into a donut store and like Happens upon a rivalry, uh, a rivalry, a robbery where everybody's brains get blown out but him, and he mm-hmm. just kind of takes the money that was about to be stolen and uses that to, to open up his shop, his mm-hmm. stereo shop. So he kind of gets what he wants. Heather um, Graham kind of gets what she wants. She goes back to school. She does. John C. Riley becomes a magician, albeit a magician at a strip club, but a magician nonetheless. Mm-hmm. But you have Dirk Diggler, who kind of who's going back to becoming a porn star it it is this kind of disquieting moment because like he is technically just just back to where he started and he does his like usual like hype up routine in the mirror and like he zips open his pants and out 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 plops his uh his uh big thick cock but the thing is it looks fake it looks extreme it looks like a prosthetic like and i think i definitely think that's by design because it just kind of it just kind of gives you that that thought of like all this for just a big fake-looking cock. Yeah, it's just this feeling of like the futility of it all, and like th- just kind of the 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 fragile human, the fragile humanity that's kind of at the center of everybody's actions in this movie, rep- rep- represented by a big flaccid thirteen-inch dong. Like it's it's perfectly emblematic, I think, of like the movie's kind of final. Uh, words words fail me, but kind of the kind of the theme of the movie. It's just these kind of frag the fragile humanity at the center of everything that just ultimately leads to people self destructing.
0: Mm-hmm. You know until you they anything? finally and it's mm-hmm. until they finally wind up where they started at, which
1: is which is
0: kind of sadly ironic, because mm-hmm. like these people want to move on to bigger better things. They want to be bigger and better than they are, but they're stuck, mm-hmm. and they'll always be stuck until they actually do something to fix it. Material conditions have to change in order for things to progress. Yeah. You know, in the case of Wahlberg's character, it is also really sad because, like, there is also kind of this feeling that he is content with it at the end of the day, which is heartbreaking because we've seen what it's done to him. It almost feels like this almost very quiet but content defeat. And it's so bleak. I love it. I think it really hits home and I think it's really beautiful in a really miserable way. But I love it. I feel like
1: shit. Well, that's as good a cue as any to lead us into recommendations for Boogie Nights. Chris, do you recommend Boogie Nights? I do. I really do. It's 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 one of my favorites.
0: Um, early P.T. Anderson is always great P.T. Anderson. I think actually, you know, every P.T. Anderson movie is good. Mm. I haven't seen a bad one. It's it's heartbreaking. It's devastating. It's hilarious. It's so intelligent. Mm. It's really mature, for, again, for someone who made it at the ripe old age of twenty six. And yeah, it's it's one of the I don't know. It's it's just a movie that really sticks with you. Yeah. It's on Netflix. You have no In excuse. Canada. In Canada. In the States it's on HBO Max. Can't recommend it enough. Go look at Mark Wahlberg's prosthetic thirteen inch cock. Absolutely. And then spend two and a half hours with
1: some very miserable pathetic people. Yes. It's Uh I also give bookie knight's the highest possible recommendation Mm -hmm. with the knowledge that like despite all the glitz on the surface you're in for a miserable time and it should be made pretty clear from like the minute that mark Wahlberg offers to pull his dick out for burt reynolds it is very 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 miserable but like it definitely pulls you in like every character even like the every at least every one of the main or supporting characters like has something going on that makes them interesting to watch like we didn't even really talk about philip seymour hoffman no
0: we didn't really talk about philip seymour hoffman we barely even touched on heather graham and i think she's incredible in the movie
1: yeah everybody's incredible in this movie like heather graham with i guess or i guess like who is clearly like having a lot of mental mental health issues and is kind of kind of finds like a found family in porn and then philip seymour hoffman who's obviously going through his own stuff like every character you follow the story of every single character and mm-hmm. just see how the industry that they're in and the time period that they live in like utterly destroys them and then their kind of attempts at building themselves back up successful or otherwise yeah and it's extremely it's extremely fucking good like it, it's like two and a half hours two hours 45 minutes somewhere in there but it it it, it just it doesn't let up it doesn't feel no. that long at all um so yeah can't recommend boogie nights enough mm-hmm. um i also really want to take this time also because
0: i mean we'll we'll go into the ensemble and inherent vice later too but like i think paul thomas anderson is literally like the only filmmaker right now who's still alive who is just so fucking good at making the ensemble film um like he really learned a lot from Robert Altman and it really fucking shows.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Um go watch Nashville. Yeah, yeah. Uh now out of print.
2: Unfortunately.
0: Thanks, Paramount. Uh we're gonna take a short break. Yeah. Please listen to this ad from our sponsor. Please. Please.
2: Please.
0: <sighs> it's been hard trying to feed my dead wife. Can barely afford it that's
1: a squirrel you know how much it costs to buy baby food these days i feel like you're dodging my statement that it literally is just a squirrel
2: oh god not the crash oh god
1: Fucking what's I the mean. deal with anchor okay well that was a good ad break mm-hmm
0: all right uh welcome back to sequel decay the only movie podcast still made using asbestos yeah yeah i guess i'll lead us into inherent vice yeah, by all means. Great. That was the worst segue I've ever done. Okay.
1: <laughs> I kind of liked it.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you you, you, suck.
1: This is the last episode of Sequel Decay. Thank you so much for joining us for the last two years. I'm going to cry deeply for the next two or so years, and uh, goodbye. Bye forever. See ya! Anyway, Chris, talk about Inherent Vice.
0: All right, so Inherent Vice came out in
1: 2014,
0: and it, uh, it stars a shitload of people, including uh, Joaquin Phoenix, Josh Brolin, Owen Wilson, Reese Witherspoon, Catherine Waterston, um, Jenna Malone is in it, I keep forgetting she's in it, uh, Eric Roberts, and Martin Short, among, among many others names I'm probably forgetting. And it's based on the 2009, I think, novel by Thomas Pynchon. And the entire movie basically revolves around a stoner private eye in 1971 named Doc Spartello, played by Joaquin Phoenix, who is reunited with his ex-girlfriend Shasta Faye Hepworth, played by Catherine Waterston, who comes to him when her current boyfriend, who is a billionaire land developer, Mickey Wolfman, played by Eric Roberts, uh suddenly disappears under very mysterious and sketchy circumstances hijinks hilarity and of course misery because this is a ball thomas anderson movie ensue stefan what do you think of inherent vice
1: Um, inherent vice is terrific the first time i saw it was uh a few years ago because you lent me your blu-ray copy and i remember watching it whilst being very very tired and really enjoying it, but also retaining very little of it. Because it is a very, 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 very hard movie to uh, to really get a handle on. Because, like, like we'll talk about, it feels like a drug-fueled haze. I rewatched it specifically for this episode. And it is a weird movie in basically every aspect. But I think if you can kind of... Let, let it be more of a sensory experience than a, than a completely logical one. It's, it's, a, it's a terrific time. Joaquin Phoenix is great in it, but like kind of like what, what we mentioned about Paul Thomas Anderson kind of having mastered the uh, the craft of ensemble cast. Like, everybody in this movie absolutely nails it. Yeah, it, it's a terrific movie. I, I, I'm a really big fan of it. Chris, what do you think about Inherent Vice?
0: That's a great question.
1: Thank you.
2: <laughs>
0: okay, so Inherent Vice is, I, yeah, I have a long experience, or a long relationship with Inherent Vice. Um, when I was in high school, actually, this movie I came, came out. out. I was 17. And I've told you this story before, I'll just tell it quickly for the show. Um, I waited in line outside of the Princess Theatre in Edmonton for like 45 minutes to an hour, just waiting for the theatre to open its doors, in the dead of winter, no less, just hey, to Chris, go see What are this winters movie.
1: in Edmonton like? Oh, terrible. <laughs> They're the worst.
0: Like, I think it was like minus mm. 30 out too, which made it even worse. So like, I'm just standing out there like waiting and yeah. And like, just imagine the 17 year old kid in line for a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, like freezing mm. his ass off. and just like really giddy because he's really pumped for it. And like, I had seen before I got, went into Inherent, Vice, I said I had seen Magnolia, Boogie Nights, There Will Be Blood, and Pretty Sure the Master mm. at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, I had basically seen everything that wasn't hearted. Mm. I was really pumped i was really excited obviously like some of the shit from like those movies really went over my head because you know I'm 17 but i still really liked them mm-hmm. i remember going up to the thing and going like hey can i get a ticket to inherent vice and they asked me for my id mm. it, it was 18a so like i was 17. and i thought shit they're not gonna let me in the movie and i just kind of awkwardly stood there and went uh, uh and they went no i'm just fucking with you go inside have a good time
1: it's <laughs> awesome
0: I, I went in and I have no fucking idea what I just watched, <laughs> but I loved it. <laughs> like I, I, I think that was the first time I ever felt high in my life,
2: because
0: mm-hmm. like I had never smoked pot up up to this point. Mm-hmm. I was a pretty straight laced kid, mm-hmm. and I just remembered like saying to myself like Fuck, is this what it's like?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like it was insane. It was it was it was it was wild. But and ever since then, like I, I've rewatched it like several times because I just really enjoy the trip every time it feels it feels different to me it hits different and I love it more and more and more and more it's, it's one of those movies where like yeah it kind of like Stefan said, like if you don't follow it logically and you kind of follow it more on a sensory level I'd mm-hmm. even go so far as to say like if you stop following the plot after a while focus more on the characters and kind of what they're going through the film yeah. makes more sense
1: I, I t- 100% agree
0: it's not for everybody I can understand people being turned off
1: a lot of people were, by my understanding.
0: The people that like it really like it. The people that don't like it really don't like it. I, I've also read the book. I, I think like Inherent Vice is the only Pynchon adaptation that I'm aware of, or at least the only mainstream one. And I think, and I, again, like I've read the book, so I can speak on this. This is honestly the only way you can adapt it. Like Pynchon's really hard to adapt. Um, You haven't read any Pynchon, have you? I have not. Okay, so Thomas Pynchon's a fascinating writer, in the sense that he's incredibly complex, like there's a lot going on, and it's a lot to take in. It it sometimes can be really hard to follow, depending on the book. Like sometimes even like it feels almost impossible. You know, um, Gravity's Rainbow is it's it's brilliant, but like, and I'm not the only one that's made this comparison, but it's 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 like reading fucking Ulysses. <laughs> like you're in for a fucking like it's a daunting task, mm-hmm. and it's a big fucking book too. So like, holy shit. <laughs> but it's it's so goddamn rewarding when you get through it and i think inherent vice is one of the easier pension books i've read i'd say like this or like the crying of lot 49 are some of the easier ones to get through it also helps that they're shorter ultimately yeah pension is yeah pension's complex and i think inherent vice this this is the only way you could adapt it if this is the only way that makes logical sense to me you know i i think it's as good in adaptations you're gonna get i think it sticks to the book really well too like i don't think you're losing a whole lot if you're losing anything at all this is as good like this is probably one of the best book adaptations i've seen in a while i guess let's talk about the turn of the decade again hell yeah we we right. so time <laughs> Kind of like Boogie Nights, but also unlike Boogie Nights, um, this film is reflective of a turn in the decade. Uh, This time, it's the 60s going into the 70s. And we only really get, like, idealized flashbacks of the 60s. Um, But ultimately, this is a commentary on the death of the hippie culture. um, I think just the death of counterculture in general. As well as the death of any sort of revolutionary movements in the United States. It's, It's not really an actions have consequences thing like in... Boogie Nights, it's more of a, just a slow, somber defeat, and kind of the impact that it has on these characters, specifically just with Doc, though. Like, I think everyone else is relatively adjusting to it, and coping with it as best as they can. I think Doc is literally the only exception to the rule. Yeah, because by the end of the 1960s, a lot of counterculture and revolutionary movements in the United States had basically died because... Of the death of Martin Luther King, because of the protests that erupted at the uh, Chicago DNC in 1968. Um, mm. Also, um, counterculture really died because of the Manson family. yeah, And the Sharon Tate murders, which are referenced mm. quite a bit throughout the film, you know, because of and because of that, you see kind of this slow rise to authoritarianism, which would really peak in the 80s. Mm. But that slow rise is really coming is really building up in the 70s
1: you also kind of see like kind of to to bolster the, th- the your point about the death of a uh, die-off of countercultures like you kind of have like kind of the complete ex- exposing i guess uh, that's probably not the right word but like kind of the the revelation that kind of hippie subculture never really amounted much to anything in the way of actual material change you did it you did kind of see kind of the death of the death of the hippie as it were
0: yeah and and like you said like the death of the hippie really does come back come down to it comes down to a lot just the sheer fact of yeah, hippie culture was getting everyone nowhere i mean if you uh i mean we we, we've talked to death about like different counter-revolutionary movements in the 60s and just because i've been rereading revolution for the hell of it i guess i'll talk about abby hoffman who I I I have very conflicted views on for them like in, in a very broad general sense. Um, I think he has said some very brilliant things. I really do. Um, I think he does have a lot to say. I think he has some really strong ideological points. You know, when he does make them, the problem is is that he's he much like a lot of people were in the '60s, especially on the left, were mm-hmm. very disorganized. There was no real sense of leadership in these revolutionary yeah. movements. And Hoffman being kind of one of those examples of, you know, someone who who had a lot of ideas and a lot to say and a lot of and, and had a lot of thoughts about what was going on in the United States at that point, especially Vietnam, especially with, you know, the youth, especially with capitalism, especially with authoritarianism and certain racist institutions like mm. the police. And again, a lot of these things are, you know, extremely like if, if you ever read anything that he's kind of written, it's it's extremely intelligent. And then there's also just kind of that thing of like where you you don't really know. And, and a part of this is just kind of his per- was just kind of his personality because like he was a very sardonic, very ironic, very kind of darkly comedic person. Mm-hmm. Like, one, one word I would use to describe revolution for the hell of it at points is it's very ironic mm. and it's very funny. Yeah. Like, if Abby Hoffman were still alive today, he'd be one of those irony, po- irony poison posters on Twitter. Mm. Probably saying edgy shit just for the sake of saying edgy shit. Mm. Again, the problem with him, and again, like, this is emblematic of literally every revolutionary movement in the 60s, is they didn't gain any traction because they were extremely aimless and didn't have any sense of organization. Yeah, Like, I mean, it comes in, again, with the title of the book, Revolution for the Hell of It. Yeah. Um, there was a pamphlet that he was passing out in the late 60s called Fuck the System. Um, it didn't really go into any solutions about how to fix or abolish the system. Um, ultimately, what it was was just a pamphlet kind of telling people in New York how to kind of survive on nothing, which yeah. is is helpful in that moment, but it's not helpful in a, in a in a in a way of progress
1: yeah it's it doesn't material it doesn't like actually help people materially it's just a way of helping people kind of survive their current their predicament. yeah mm-hmm. um and like you could that that's obviously this is this isn't really a, a yippie thing but with like the hippie thing in general this is kind of where you get like kind of the trope of hippies wanting to like change the world through the power of love or healing or meditation or whatever yeah it's Obviously, sometimes it's more played for stereotypes or laughs, but like generally you did have this feeling of like what, you know, we can change the world with our, with our, with our thoughts and our, our, our good vibes, et cetera, as opposed to actually doing anything about it.
0: Yeah, like it was too peaceful. Mm-hmm. And again, extremely aimless. I, I don't want to say thoughtless. Again, I, I think I, there are, there were ideas and there were thoughts and there were. Good things that came out of it, good literature that came out of it, and I think it is it it did to an extent pave the way to where we are now because you know you know readopt some of these ideas while also learning from the lack of organization and the aimlessness. Um, and again, this isn't even just a yippie thing. This isn't even just any specific thing. This is just this is how most. If not all revolutionary movements in the 60s were,
1: yeah, and then like the because and you can tell because like the ones that actually did pose a material threat like the Black Panthers were mm. put down by state forces they were put down
0: quickly by state mm-hmm. forces anyway, so this leads us into the 1970s where authoritarianism was really on the rise and and again a lot of this was a lot of this was because of the Manson killings um You know, they kind of used it as, as this opportunity. I'm not going to say excuse because it was a fucking opportunity mm. to abolish any sort of revolutionary movements in the United States. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, that's what they were perceived as because they kind of fell into the hippie movement trope.
1: Yeah, you can kind of even see, um like, in her- in inherent bias, like, co- there are literally, uh, there is literally, I believe, a scene where Doc Sportello is kind of interrogated by two COINTELPRO agents. Who basically were like kind of these government operatives who basically their whole job was to destroy revolutionary movements.
0: Or even like if you look at the scene where they get pulled over by the cops Mm -hmm. um, about halfway into the movie and, you know, the cops go up to the car and they say like, oh, if, if we see, you know, more than two people in a car together and they all have longer than shoulder length hair and all these specific things, like, we need to investigate them. Or even, again, just kind of the dynamic between um, Josh Brolin's character, Bigfoot Bjornsson, and, um, and Doc. Like, this, both of them clearly despise each other, and they're both clearly at ideological odds. And I think Doc still kind of has this, like, very hippie mindset of, like, oh, well, you know, if I, if I show him love and compassion, then he'll finally, you know, turn around. Um, at the end of the day, like, he has to be aggressive with them in order to get what he wants. Cause I think the only times he actually kind of wins against Brolin's character in the entire movie are usually when he does finally stand up for himself. One scene in particular being when they're in uh they're in the restaurant. Josh Brolin's just like scarfing down pancakes and screaming in Japanese.
1: <laughs> Moto pancake.
0: Great, great man. Um <laughs> Josh Brolin is my
1: favorite part of this movie.
0: He's so fucking funny. And we'll we'll talk about the cast in a minute. But there's this exchange that they have where where you know like they're they're discussing they're they're discussing different like things about gold and stuff like that and even heroin uh Roland's character says to walking phoenix like you know if if you weren't uh if you weren't going around trying to score dope in high school, you would have been able to pick up on this sportello finally gets the finally gets the one up on him and he and he uses that line back on him and it's in those moments where he he wins is when he stands up for himself and really kind of fights back. It's never when he tries to show any level of compassion. So ultimately it does kind of tell you like you do need to fight back against these establishments in order to kind of get what you want. It Like it doesn't have to be super violent. Like I'm not asking people to bring out a fucking guillotine, but like you do need to stand up for yourself. You can't just rely on compassion and love to fix everything because that's not how the world
1: works. Especially not for compassion and love, showing compassion and love to people who have zero compassion or love for you. Exactly. Like, these are people who fucking despise you.
0: But how does the turn kind of reflect Sportello is a very important question because a lot of this film does kind of revolve around uh, Doc ultimately having to kind of cope with it mm-hmm. in a way and I, i'm gonna start with my big bold analysis and my kind of fan theory here and i i'm sure other people have brought it up too i just do not have the receipts to prove it because i just didn't bother to google it but i'm really really fucking certain entire second half of this movie after the ouija board sequence which is a flashback i'm pretty sure that the that most of if not the entire second half of this movie is completely in his head Uh, the movie wraps up super neatly. Um, he ends up back together with Shasta, um, him and Bigfoot finally see eye to eye for the first time, kind of in that love conquers all way. Um, because he kind of goes, well, if, if he had a partner, you know, he won't be such an asshole. There's a lot of very dreamlike imagery throughout the, and a lot of very like oddly surreal, but absurdist imagery throughout the film, throughout the second half as well. Mm -hmm. Um. Like, you know, Josh Brolin's character eating God knows how much weed.
1: Yeah, yeah, just a whole plate like of it. Like a
0: fucking psychopath. Yeah. Just a whole plate of it. And like him even saying, like, after a long, hard day of committing civil rights <laughs> violations. Like, it it does feel like, it, it feels, it feels mm. like almost parody. And in that sense, it does feel like it's really in his head. You also look at kind of how when Shasta does come back and return to Doc um, after the first half of the movie she is literally wearing the same kind of clothes and having the same kind of style that he ideally sees her in. Mm-hmm. So he is ultimately just seeing an idealized version of his ex-girlfriend, mm-hmm. which is incredibly fucking yeah. depressing. And I, and I, and ultimately I do think that this is a reflection on doc struggling to cope with this turn of the decade because he can't cope mm-hmm. with it. He can't adapt to these surroundings. He can't adapt to these circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess to come back to Abby Hoffman for a minute. For those of you that don't know, Abby Hoffman committed suicide I believe in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And he did it because and he, because he he saw the way the world was going and he realized that these revolutionary ideas were dying if not completely dead in the water at this
2: point mm-hmm.
0: and he just decided there was no point. Mm-hmm. He gave up. And I would not be shocked whatsoever if that was eventually what happened to Doc. Yeah. That he just eventually just completely gave in and just saw no point in continuing on.
1: I have a, I have a question. Sure. Uh, is the, you, cause you've read the book. Um, does the book mm-hmm. kind of have this like ambiguity where it it's open to interpretation, whether or not kind of the second half, the second, the, the last part of it happens. Yeah. From what I remember, it is pretty up in the air.
0: I mean, again, and that, that comes with what, with who Pynchon is as a writer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, cause Pynchon, again, he's a very complex kind of writer and, You know, you can't take everything on the surface. You really need to dig deep. It's very rewarding when you do, because it's really thought-provoking stuff. But
2: Mm.
0: ultimately, yeah, like, it is very open to interpretations, very up in the air. I'm sure other people have different interpretations of what the ending means. But yeah, it's an extremely, it's extremely depressing. Yeah, you don't really know what's real and what's not. You don't really know, you don't really know how Doc's going to cope with this in the future. You don't really know if he's even okay. Honestly, I'd say it's sadder than Boogie Nights. Really? I I would argue just because like I I can see this really devastating end for him even if it's not explicitly spelled out I can see this really devastating end for him and and it breaks my little heart really mm-hmm. um uh Stefan do you have anything you want to add to that
1: no I think that I think that's a really compelling interpretation of it obviously like just the nature of this kind of movie is that like if you wanted to look at it the other way as this actually being like the literal progression of the movie. The movie is kind of loose enough in its uh like kind of very hazy narrative that like you could easily see it as like the events on screen take the events on screen for granted, but I do think yours is a little, your your interpretation is a little more compelling. Well, thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Because it because it does kind of touch on kind of Doc's inability to let go of the past, which Mm -hmm. in as much as like there is kind of a coherent narrative in this movie. Like one coherent part of it is kind of that character trait of Doc's.
0: But as much as this movie kind of breaks our little hearts and it It is a very sad movie, it's also extremely funny. (laughs) I I would say that this is the funniest Paul Thomas Anderson movie.
1: I can't really argue with that. No. Hey kids,
0: if you ever wanted to see... Josh Brolin deep Throat a banana, and also Martin Short play a coke-addled pervert dentist. The
1: the, the jo- Josh Brolin deep throating a banana is my favorite part of the entire movie. My second favorite part uh, favorite part of the movie. Uh, you're gonna have to remind me exactly what she says. Maybe, maybe you have it written down. Oh
0: oh G. what oh when you uh, oh when they get stopped by the cops and she goes, yeah. "Are you the
1: great beast?" No no no, that's a policeman.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's
1: that's fucking hilarious. <laughs>
0: I think my favorite Martin Short quote in the entire movie, and Martin Short's my favorite part of the movie. Uh-huh. Like, his five or ten minutes in the movie is just comedy gold.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That was some inspired fucking casting. But
2: mm-hmm.
0: I think my favorite my favorite line, my favorite exchange, is when um, fucking uh, Dinas comes in and he goes, Oh man, she's insane? It's groovy. And Martin Short just gets really defensive And aggressive and goes It's not groovy to be insane Japonica here was institutionalized
2: <laughs>
0: And like he really fucking sells it too <laughs> But but the Great Beast thing was just as good Or also like Just how calm he is Throughout most of his scenes And then like as soon as he hears the sirens And he sees the lights He just loses his absolute shit Yeah, Fuck <laughs> oh my god fuck like it's 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 very funny
1: my I think my favorite character though is still is still Josh Brolin. I oh think god. anything any anytime he's on screen is just gold because he's just this like meathead cop with like so many layers of just being kind of insane and clownish uh like the first time you see him isn't actually in a police station. it's him doing a local ad like <laughs> he's got this like shitty something.
0: fucking shitty fucking afro wig on
1: yeah yeah he's just yeah. making
0: so many like he's just trying like it, it reminds me of like the steve buscemi
1: how you do how do you do fellow kids 70s edition exactly exactly uh like he's never not being like even even his fucking dialogue was like after a lot after coming home after a long day of committing civil rights violations or just eating in a japanese restaurant yelling Moto panakeko! <laughs> at the at the at the waiter and or psychotically like uh, too yeah, yeah, and uh, at the very end, where he just like eats an entire plate of weed, he he's just kind of unhinged reactionary cop with a massive goofy streak. Goofy streak, who's like also like, you know, there's one scene where he's at home and like his wife is clearly this dominant, dominate, domineering force in his life, so he has to take out his like weird, erratic aggression elsewhere. It's and it's just so delightful to watch.
0: I, I think my favorite Josh Brolin quote in the entire movie, and I'm going to butcher it a little bit because I can't remember it very well. But like when he says, people have called me a renaissance cop. <laughs> right. I am a, I am a man of many things. One thing I am not is stupid. <laughs>
1: um, people have called me a renaissance cop.
0: <laughs> um, I, I also really appreciate Benicio Del Toro in the movie.
1: Yeah, he's great. He's not um, in the movie for as long as I thought he would be, but he's very great. I also really like Catherine Waterston, A, because she's great in the movie, but B, you can see just how much of a height difference there is between her and Joaquin Phoenix. Which is kind of (laughs) cool. It's
0: awesome. Long live my short
1: king. Yeah, Joaquin Phoenix, secret short king. You'll love to see it. Um, I feel like every male, like, like major actor in Hollywood is actually really short. Like, I'm pretty sure Robert De Niro is pretty short. Could be wrong about that. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Tom Cruise is tiny. I'm sure there are other examples. Joaquin Phoenix is
0: like five seven. Sorry, Joaquin Phoenix is like five seven. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's it's very entertaining to me.
0: One of the one of the funnier moments in the movie for me, and like this was more like something that's completely out of everyone's control. Mm-hmm. But like in the opening scene of the movie, you really notice the height difference. Yeah, it's blatant.
1: Uh huh.
0: Um, and Catherine Waterston's like what I think like five eleven when I did my research.
1: Yeah, something like that. Which isn't like
0: super freakishly tall or anything like that, but like I think I'm I think I have like two inches over her. There's but like and then you like contrast that with like the scene where like they're walking on the beach together and they clearly deliberately made it so that Joaquin Phoenix looks taller than her.
1: <laughs> it's like who I feel are they like tra-
0: Paul Thomas Anderson went through the dailies and went son of a bitch. <laughs>
2: like,
1: but it's also Fuck. like who are they? Who are they trying to fool? <laughs>
0: throws his arms up and you're like come on
1: man. you can't conceal my man joaquin's power
0: uh so anyway yeah but like that that, that to me was funny as shit she's great in the movie though she's yeah. phenomenal like whenever i think of Catherine waterston i i think i think about her in this movie a lot mm-hmm. i think one of the things i really like about her performance in this movie especially in the very beginning is you you get this very maternal sense from her in the dynamic between her and joaquin phoenix yeah There's something, and and I think the height thing really does go into it. Again, it wouldn't shock me if, like, those scenes on the beach and, like, other stuff like that, where they do make him seem taller than her. I I wonder if that was a deliberate choice, because in that first scene, it makes a lot of sense. Like, she's kind of this, like, I don't want to say domineering, but, like, she does have more of a head on her shoulders, so to speak. She Mm -hmm. seems more adjusted to, more well-adjusted to what, like, her current material conditions kind of sees and i mean the movie even kind of sees doc as kind of this child Mm -hmm. in contrast yeah it it is very depressing and i think it does really set up the rest of the movie in a way Mm -hmm. one of my favorite scenes or one sorry not one of my favorite scenes but like one of my favorite moments in that opening is when you know he walks her to her car and she's about to drive off and she says watch your feet." Just that kind of, like, still kind of keeping an eye on him to make sure he's not completely fucking everything up for himself. Yeah. And then, you know, she drives away, and then, you know, cut to the great fucking music.
2: Mm-hmm. Terrific music.
0: Goddamn, some of the best drumming. I swear to God, that song. Some of the mm-hmm. best fucking drumming yeah. I've ever heard in my life.
1: Uh, With Catherine Watterson, too, like, in, the, in again, in that first scene, like, you kind of get, like, this... Odd, like kind of adjustment of like kind of the noir dynamic, um, mm-hmm. because Catherine Waterston very much is not, not not to a T, but kind of like a quasi femme fatale character. But Joaquin Phoenix, on the other hand, aside from like a stoic, stiff upper stiff upper lip kind of noir detective, is this kind of bumbling stoner jackass. And it's it's a very ni- it's a very nice little kind of
0: yeah, because like it, it's kind of I don't know if I would define her as a femme fatale.
1: I that's why I said quasi, like she's not really there. But yeah, I
0: don't even think there really is like a femme fatale or even like kind of like your straight laced detective in this
1: movie. No, no, definitely not. It,
0: it, like it really does feel like it kind of inverts the noir thing there because it really does feel like stoner jackass and his girlfriend who moved on. Well, ex-girlfriend who moved on. Um, yeah. I think also one of the best characters in this movie is uh, Alige, uh played by Joanna Newsom, who, again, is fantastic. She's and she also narrates the film and she's phenomenal in it. Goddamn um very very underappreciated i think when we talk about movies like this um she's kind of doc's voice of reason she's kind of the one trying to get him to get the point but she's also trying her best not to like pull her hair out and scream at him yeah um again like one of the lines that really stuck out to me was the whole change your hair change your life thing but yeah like it, it really adds to how Kind of how much Doc needs to kind of, you know, move on and kind of figure out his current material conditions as opposed to sticking in the past. Like, everyone everyone else around him is moving on. Everyone else around him is trying to get him to cope. But he can't. Mm -hmm. He's too Mm -hmm. stuck in the past. Like, even his, like, quote-unquote hippie friends, like, they don't look like hippies. He's the only one in the entire film who looks like a fucking hippie. Anyway, sorry to bring it back to the, uh... To the turn of the decade thing again let's talk about hong chow
1: let's do it because she's also great uh i guess we've talked uh in a couple episodes about hong chow once in the in the Watchmen episode and also whenever i talked about driveways last year and i'm pretty wow. sure i've mentioned
0: her in downsizing
1: yes uh sh- she's really good in this
0: oh she's great she's yeah
1: <laughs> so fucking funny yeah like I, I she's not in the movie for very long but she do, she does she does she does make a good impression.
0: Uh, so, I I
1: think what I really love about her is like her really chipper demeanor. Yeah, yeah. Her very sense
0: of business esque
1: demeanor. Professionally chipper.
0: Yeah, professionally chipper. Like she's got that customer service voice down to a fucking t. Yeah,
1: when she talks to you about the pussy eater special.
0: Also, we get Owen Wilson's mm-hmm. character
1: who, I guess on the surface, it seems
0: like a very un- underdeveloped subplot, but, like, it makes sense, again, in the context mm-hmm. of the rest of the movie. Uh, he plays a guy named Koi C- uh, Harlingen, who was a sax player for a surfer rock band. Um, think um, kind of the mm-hmm. lively ones, in a way. Or, like, a Dirkdale kind of thing. And eventually, he became an informant for the police, and, you know, he had to abandon his family because of it and they're under the impression that he's dead kind of um, that is until his wife Hope who is played by Jenna Malone and I keep having to remind myself that she, that isn't her I Jesus more often than not I keep forgetting <laughs> um you know when she finally starts to become suspicious because of money that's coming in and she doesn't know where the fuck it's coming from and she thinks that he's still alive knows that she's still or knows that he's still alive you know, and ultimately it kind of resolves itself at the end, and like it's it, it does seem kind of underdeveloped on the surface, but again, it it does come back to that theme of you know just kind of being stuck in the past and wanting to go back to the past and wanting to go back to the way things were. Mm. Uh, Koi ultimately sees his family as an escape, yeah, this idealist escape that like if he comes back to his his wife and child, you know, they're going to welcome him back with open arms and things are going to be fine again. Mm-hmm. When in reality, that probably wouldn't be the case. Yeah, I don't see things getting progressively worse, but I definitely th- see things being hard for a while. Mm-hmm. And again, like a lot of this is coming from speculation because I don't know how much of what happens in the second half is really in Doc's head and what's not.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But you know, I, again, it, it it serves as this really nice parallel in a way, like it is kind of Doc again forcing his psychology on other people. And on top of that, we also have Reese Witherspoon who plays a junior DA.
1: God, she's so good.
0: Once again, kind of reprising her role from election.
1: <laughs> <laughs> kind of, yeah.
0: Now with sixty percent less Tracy Fleck. Um you know, one hundred percent
1: less Matthew Broderick.
0: And a hundred percent less Matthew Broderick, lest <laughs> we forget about his fun funny little incident in nineteen eighty seven.
1: Yeah. Lest we forget. One hundred percent less Matthew Broderick fantasizing about hate fucking her, I guess. That happens in election. <laughs>
0: anyway yes but she's great but basically you know she's kind of doc's new girlfriend and again like she's a straight-laced junior da kind of seeing him as a method of escapism i guess Mm -hmm. in her own way you know she's ashamed to be around him in public Mm -hmm. but you know if this is like after hours late at night she's gonna go over there smoke some weed Probably fuck him and have a pizza because I think she's still fine. Again, she still does kind of find the past somewhat appealing. Mm. So I think she's coping in her own way, where it's like she's kind of taking advantage of the fact that he's still stuck in the past as a method of escapism for herself. Because while she does, has, she has kind of moved on to an extent. I think she still does kind of yearn for it. And then we also have <laughs> um, my Rudolph is in this briefly too. Which my my favorite
1: part of watching this with you again was when you said. I have Rudolph's in this? And I went, yeah, they're married. <laughs> uh, it's like, it was one of those things where I like, I said it and without really thinking about it. And then as I said it, I was like, oh, right. I'm an idiot.
0: <laughs> and she's great in it. She's really fun for like, you know, the few minutes she's on screen. She plays Doc's receptionist. <laughs> I, I, I do really like how his, his office is literally located in a dentist's office.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: that is That is some quality shit.
1: Eric Roberts?
0: Oh, yes, he's in the movie for 30 seconds.
1: He's in every movie for 30 seconds, it feels like.
0: Yeah, basically as long as they give him a check. But he's fantastic in this, you know, for what he has to do, which is, you know, look doped out of his fucking mind. So basically he played himself, and he did a great job.
1: Yeah, good job, Eric Roberts.
0: Yes, great job, Eric Roberts, star of Cool Cat Saves the Kids.
1: Oh my god, Is, is, is that true? Yes. I told I I I've watched I I'm aware of that movie and I totally blanked out the fact that he was in that movie probably because I don't think he was actually in that movie I I'm I'm like I'm like fifty percent like sure you're fucking with me but
0: and just like that yes he was oh okay yeah because he was at the yeah like the section where Cool Cat finds the gun and prevents a school shooting
1: oh wow okay oh he really will be in anything if they pay him
0: uh probably I'm gonna send you a really funny picture. Mm-hmm. This is this is legit the IMDb page for Cool Cat Saves the Kids. Oh hell yeah! You're gonna notice the thing that's wrong.
1: What? 18A? <laughs> eh? <laughs> is there full frontal nudity in Cool Cat Saves the Kids? Cool Cat whips out his
0: massive. 13-inch prosthetic penis after telling himself he's a star in the mirror. <laughs> are Are we sure that I'm not looking at the cool cat shaves the kids IMDb page? <laughs> uh, that was a stupid joke. Yeah. Um, I
1: liked
0: it. <laughs> no, no, you shouldn't have. Um, well, I, I did. Fuck you. Yeah. I, for, I forgot that Michael Kenneth Williams is in this movie for 30 seconds.
1: Oh, right. He does not have a lot of screen time. No, he certainly does not. He is wonderful. He's very good in his screen times as a member of the Black Gorilla family,
0: who also has ties with the Aryan Brotherhood.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this movie makes sense, folks. This movie's fun.
0: Like, I I wish he was in the movie more, honestly, because he just yeah, has same. the one scene. And I do really like him. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, he's also great on Boardwalk Empire.
1: That I've not seen.
0: Oh, dude, it's such a good show.
1: I've heard it's very good.
0: It's it's wicked. Um. Mm.
1: We talked about Josh and deep throating a banana. Maybe not for enough time. I feel like watching. we could go for another few hours on that specifically, but I think we can yeah. do
0: That you know what? Yeah, I do. We want to talk about Josh and deep throating banana for three more. Hours? Yes,
1: and I'm glad you asked. So first, it starts with a right. few subtle licks, and then he gets. A... Then you know he gets a little more into it. Like he he likes the... gets a bite in there. He gets he gets a bite in there. You know he's a little nasty. Uh, and, you know, this, and he starts getting into a groove, you know? This is all while Joaquin Phoenix is looking on in complete and utter confusion. I, I wouldn't even say confusion's the right
0: word. I would almost say just
1: fucking bewilderment. Me- mesmerization? He's stunned. Yeah. Anyway, this scene goes on for, like, two minutes. And it just holds on it, too. It's beautiful. It's a work of art. This is high art, folks. An exceptional film. I fucking love it.
0: It's so fucking good. Mm-hmm. And on that note, Stefan, do you recommend Inherent Vice?
1: I do highly recommend Inherent Vice. It's not for everybody, for certain. It's weird as hell. And like we said, it's best followed on a on a sensory level, for just throwing kind of all like logical plot progression out the window. Like Chris said, mm-hmm. like it, you almost might be better off if you just kind of forget about the plot at a certain point. Um, But... Boy, is it worth it? The cast is phenomenal. Joaquin Phoenix and Josh Brolin are, are 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 golden. Are golden. They're great. Um, but also like it does have this kind of. It's it's very funny, but it does have kind of this melancholic edge to it. And uh, like again, like with Boogie Nights, it is on the longer end, but it doesn't really feel like it's on the longer end. I guess unless this is really not your movie, in which case the, you're the, you're gonna you're definitely gonna feel the length. For me, at least, it really it really flew by. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of long story short this is a terrific movie i highly recommend i I highly recommend checking it out especially if you are, are kind of like okay with kind of this hazy nar- narrative style um but yeah inherent vice rules chris uh can't recommend it enough i i also do recommend the book mm-hmm. which is
0: wonderful and brilliant it, it is it is a shorter read for Pynchon, so I, I i think it would be the ideal starting point to be honest with you um I think the movie is a little more rewarding once you read the book. Stefan, mm. take the hint.
1: Okay, okay, okay. Final, learn to read. Jesus.
0: I know. I know, it's very tough. Mm-hmm. I, like I said, this movie is very sad in its own way. Like I said, there's something kind of cold-hearted. Not Not cold-hearted, but just something kind of cold about it. Where, like, it's not really in your face about how miserable it is, but it really is. The cast is incredible, I think the movie's style is great, because it doesn't- it, it feels like a drug field haze, but it also just almost does feel like a dream. Mm-hmm. It is very surrealist in nature, while also playing on, like, Theatre of the Absurd. For the first time, I decided to finally watch The Stoned. I would like to apologize to Stefan now, because eh. I'm very annoying when I'm stoned. <laughs> Been told by myself. <laughs>
1: I mean, I, I, like, literally stopped the movie dead every 15 minutes or so to talk about the the Josh Brolin deep-throating and banana things, and I was stone sober, so.
0: Yeah, and I was, like, baked out of my mind and, like, frantically writing notes because I had finally figured out this movie in my eyes.
1: <laughs> Your <laughs> third eye had opened. My third
0: eye had opened, and I was so hungry. I, I do recommend watching The Stone as well because I think, like, I wouldn't watch it for the first time stoned but I would definitely recommend watching it stoned at some point because I think it is kind of rewarding and I think it does make the movie stronger. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, in speaking of that, I'd like to uh, read my favorite letterboxd review of Inherent Vice. Go for it. As written by screen crash editor in chief, Matt Singer, who says, quote, every ticket to Inherent Vice should come with the choice of a joint or a second ticket to Inherent Vice. You'll need one or the other.
1: (laughs) I think that, I think that's probably the, review that best sums it up at this point
0: it's it's a terrific movie i can't recommend it enough i really do think it's one of my favorite paul thomas anderson movies Mm -hmm. like i would say top three it's brilliant and i think it gets better and better on each viewing i i look forward to when you watch it for the third time
1: yeah oh i look forward in whatever state really i look forward i will look forward to it too with that said that'll do it for today's edition of what 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 did you call the 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 royal the royal family podcast earlier royalty free That'll do it for this episode of Royalty Free, the only podcast centered around the comings and goings of the royal family. Speaking of goings, Prince Philip is dead. Alexa, play Despacito. (laughs) Alexa, play (laughs) Unravel. <laughs> it's just Unravel while like the camera is superimposed over the Queen's face.
0: No, no, no. I want, I want a katsi esque fast motion shot of Philip's corpse slowly rotting and decaying over the course of decades, while Unravel plays in the background. <laughs> With the unraveling of just. Go. (laughs) (laughs) It's a metaphor, kids. (laughs) Fuck the monarchy. (laughs) Yeah, fuck them. Dig up their corpses and fuck them in the fucking funeral home.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a call to action. That's a, that's a cult. That's a call to action. Play Unravel really loud outside Buckingham Palace. That's how we will change the world.
0: I think Abby Hoffman said something like that in Revolution for the
1: am pretty sure he said exactly that. I'm pretty sure he
0: said exactly that. Okay. Anyway, uh, sign-off time. Stefan, do you want to do it, or do you want me to do it?
1: Uh, you do it this time. I think I did the last two.
0: Okay. I think you just did the last one. I could do it. It's not a big deal. But um, you suck at it every time.
2: I'll do it.
1: Fine. <laughs> no, no, no. You can do it. You can do it. It's fine. Go on. Your commitment to the bit
0: just always impresses me.
1: Well, thank you. How very kind of you.
0: Anyway, so that I can shut up the jackass for a minute, I'm gonna quickly lead us out of here. So. Oh,
1: very nice. Very nice.
0: <laughs> thank you. So much once again for listening to our program. uh we are on Twitter at Decay Sequel. You can like us on Facebook and Instagram at SQL Decay. uh we are also on whatever podcasting platform you choose to use. I don't even want to name off the usuals because we're we're probably on fucking everything at mm. this point. Um, but our main our main host is Anchor, uh, who we do sponsorships mm. for because we're whores and we like money. Also Anchor anyway, is good. Um, we <laughs> also anchor is anchor is good, anchor is cool, anchor is love, anchor is life, praise be to anchor, praise be to the network. You mm. know the drill. <laughs> that was the dumbest thing I've ever fucking said. Mm. I really just want someone to shoot me in the goddamn face.
1: After the ad read. Or after really? the after the sign off. <laughs> after the ad read. Shit, we have another
0: mid roll ad? <laughs> Fuck. I think we should just put a second ad right, right before the sign off, <laughs> just for the fuck of it, or just put an ad right in after I, after we talk about mm-hmm. how we like money. That would almost be comical. That would almost be, you know, what do you call it? Yes, joyful. Um. Anyway, uh, you can, if you would like to contact us further, you can email us. Our emails in the description, and you can follow us individually on Letterbox mm-hmm. or Twitter, and we are also on mm-hmm. YouTube. However, again, those are just short clips. It's not, we don't put up the full episodes mm. on there anymore. Gonna have to download mm. a bitch. But it's more convenient that way. So fuck mm. you. No, and and once again, we are going to, uh, once again, we're going to scream at you about things because they matter to us. Um, in the description, you will find links to support the Mi'kmaq Treaty Rights and Livelihood Fisheries. You will find ways to support BLM because that's not over. Clearly fuck your news cycle it's stupid um and also to support the fight back subscription drive we've uh, provided links to not just fight back's official website but also how you can subscribe to fight back's magazine mm-hmm. so you can subscribe to either fight back or um i can't speak french stephan body post socialist great we live in a bilingual country. And yeah, if you want to support Fightback in any way, you can go to Marxist.ca, you can go to Marxist.ca slash subscribe to Fightback, or you can go to Marxist.com to support the international Marxist tendency. And you can leave us a voice message if you want. By all means. No, we're not going to listen to it. Oh, oh, and I forgot to
1: market something. We aren't going to listen to it. Market
0: something. Hey kids, do you like baseball? Boy, do I. Well, Stefan's got a really shitty, I mean, nifty uh, baseball blog going on called JSlam which uh is uh, hosted on Substack. Yeah. Um you can either read it for free just to give him an ego boost or you can uh you can
1: pledge a paid subscription of what either $6 a month, $6 a month or uh $60 a year.
0: Yes. Um oh well, I, I can I can tell you I'm paying for it so I th- I think it's good. It is good.
1: Thank you. Um, thank you
0: I, very much. Um, if if you're expecting it to be kind of a dry read, no, it's not. Uh, it's very much written in your own voice, which I do appreciate.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah.
0: Um. I I find it to be very charming, very fun, entertaining, and engaging baseball analysis. Mm. And if you're a big
1: Jays fan, I recommend you give it a read. I and... definitely worked very hard on it, so I would definitely appreciate anybody who checked it out.
0: Oh, of course. I mean, I I mean, I think it's lovely. Mm. Cranks my yank. That I
1: aim to crank the yank. Will Chris ever make a blog on Substack? No. <laughs> Substack is for cowards. Well, now that we've established how Chris feels about me, uh, did did he say we're on Twitter and whatnot? Yeah, Letterboxd, Facebook. Yeah, okay. Oh, don't add us on Facebook, please don't. By all means, do not add us on Facebook. By all means, do like the sequel decay page on Facebook. Do
0: not. Find yeah, me. just don't add us on
1: Facebook. Unless we those, personally those... know you, do not add us on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, like, you can follow us on Twitter. I don't, Brandon doesn't post at all. I I post on occasion. uh, Stefan posts on occasion. Mm. Um, You could like, I think, honestly, the best place to follow us, especially if you're just more interested in, like, our movie opinions, uh, would just be Letterboxd. Yeah. You know, we post up a couple jokes here and there.
1: Mm -hmm. Letterboxd is one of the few social media platforms that doesn't actively make me hate myself.
0: Uh, Yeah, because, like, you can really filter out the stupid on
1: there. Yeah, exactly.
0: Whereas on Twitter, it just feels like a constant.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: On that note,
1: good night. Good night. Sleep, Sleep
0: tight. Sleep tight. Don't let the bed bugs uh peg you.